coffee with God, of course, he brews. Hey, let's imagine a good conversation with God over coffee. Let's talk with God about his Bible. Let's talk with God about how he thinks Jesus is. Let's also talk with God about who the angels, Jesus, and God thinks we are. Let's do it 40 together and hear what God has to say. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 to chapter 2 verse 18. Once again, welcome to the Publical Channel where we just simply hear what God has to say. But in particular, we're having a lot of fun thinking about the book of Hebrews and thinking about having a coffee with God. And let's remember that the normal way that God speaks to us is through the Bible. And so Christians ought to read the Bible and be taught from it regularly. Now, of course, God can still speak to you in a number of ways, however he sees fit. But I wouldn't put too much stock in that because he promises to reveal himself in the Bible. The other ways, well, that's between you and God. Good luck with that. Um, but let's do it the normal way. We're going to focus on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 to uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And since it's such a longer reading, we'll get to reading all the words as we go through them step by step. But let me just focus on part of the words, because I know we all have ADD and listening to me read probably isn't going to hold all of our attention. So let me re reduce it down to the, I think, the main essence of what we're trying to grasp. Okay, it goes like this. Therefore, we must pay at closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Behold, I and the children God has given me, since therefore the children shall uh, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angel that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We'll end right there. Praise be to God for his words. Let's pray like Jesus taught us how to pray. Keep it simple. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That never gets old.
It's always such a good prayer because it's exactly the way Jesus taught us how to pray. Love it. Love it. And so with that in mind and having a cup of coffee in mind in our conversation together, um, uh, I think it was two videos ago that uh, introduced you and suggested that you get this. This is a, uh, a funny book for all Christians to develop a better sense of humor because I'm convinced that most Christians need a great sense of humor, and they should have the best sense of humor of all the people on the planet. So I'm going to grab a couple of these that uh, actually reflects on the Lord's Prayer. Totally hilarious. Um, so we have this girl named Pam, I think her name is, and Jesus talking over a coffee. And uh, the conversation goes like this. Pam says, Jesus, so many people pray for world peace. Jesus why aren't you making that happen? Jesus says, well, I'm working on it, Anne. Sorry, her name is Anne. It will come in time. A lot of things have to happen first. There's a process to this. Thy kingdom come, right? Thy will be done, right? Says Anne. We've been praying that for 2,000 years, Jesus. Jesus says, uh, how about you learn to get along with your co-workers and your ex-husband first? World peace is a few years off, sister. <laughs> Love it. Okay, here's another one. Um, and this one's uh, Kevin. Kevin's going to have a conversation with Jesus. Kevin says, give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my trespasses. Jesus says, as you forgive those who trespass against you, Kevin. Kevin says, you can't possibly mean my former business partner who cost me thousands of dollars in back taxes due to his stupid negligence. Jesus, afraid so, bro. Bitter pill at first, I know, but it'll cure what ails you. Another good one. Anyhow, I commend that to you, especially in this series that we're calling Grabbing Coffee with God. Coffee with God, he brews. So anyhow, Considering that, the coffee with God concept, I just want to tell you, there, there could be nothing better for you and your life than to imagine the reality of having coffee with God. Call it the power of positive thinking. And the Bible certainly invites you to think of God on these terms. In fact, that's going to be the focus of this week's talk, the familiar, the, <laughs> I can't even say, it, the familiarity that God brings to us in the Bible. So anyhow, uh, on this having a cup of coffee business, I think it might uh, need to be said that the truth is, is most of the coffees that we end up having with people are actually with family. Yeah, they're just with family. Most of the cup of coffees that we end up having are in the home with our family. Yeah, and so this next talk, this next talk that we're going to have with God is about his great salvation and his big, hairy, audacious plan or goal for us, us, mind you, we the people to be his people, to be his family. That is the central message of the Bible from front to back, no matter where you are. And let's not forget, too, what I brought up last week, and that is really all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, all of us as people on this planet 
have ADD. I think we've given the people with ADD a bad rap because I see every one of us having ADD, at least spiritually speaking. Christians will go for almost anything except what they're supposed to go for. Christians will go for Mary. They'll go for the saints. They'll go for the Holy Ghost and make that weird. Um, they'll also go for relics and they'll go for mantras and they'll go for rituals and traditions and liturgies and shrines and prophets. And last week we took a look at angels and how, you know, angels, you know, grab our attention more than God does. And so speaking of angels last week, we, you know, really did have to conclude that the Bible has a clear message. Jesus is no perfect angel. And I'm not saying that Jesus did anything wrong. In fact, he did nothing wrong, but he's just not an angel. He's not even a perfect angel because he's not an angel. That would be our ADD kicking in when we try to make Jesus some sort of angel, or if we go around Jesus to some sort of angel. You get my point, which brings us to, you know, the other point, and that is the author to the Hebrews sees the problem as we should too. And the author to the Hebrews sees the problem and knows exactly what God would say to our problem of ADD, being spiritually unfocused. We have a confession to make, and that is Jesus has never really been intuitive. In fact, his best mates that he picked, both men and women, would say, nope, we kind of missed the point. And they're honest enough to tell you about that in the Gospels. It's the running kind of joke or, or uh, silliness that's going on that even these guys didn't really get Jesus because he was working against their intuition. And the problem that we have is that we like our intuitions more than we like actually listening in. And that's our ADD kicking in. Lord, help us to focus. So back to Hebrews. Hebrews um, as a letter or as a book in the Bible is going to help us to get our focus. Kind of like a dad grabbing us by the ears and saying, can you hear me now? And he doesn't grab us by the ears because he hates us. He grabs us by the ears because we can't focus. And looks straight in our eyes and says, can you hear me now? Listen. Just listen. So the author to Hebrews is going to use, as we might expect God to, 2,000 years of God's biblical history to clarify what has always been said and how what is still being said. The author also knows how patient God really is. God takes our ignorance and our ADD into consideration. God is patient with us. That is the promise. In fact, that is the overall impression that God is trying to make on you is that God is reliable, that God is faithful, that God is love, that God is forgiveness. And God the Son is all in all. Don't go anywhere but God the Son because that is the plan of God is for all in all to come onto the Son that we call Jesus. Okay, so anyhow, we're going to hit the first passage first. And the first passage, you know, starts actually in chapter 1, verse 14, and goes down to chapter 2, verse 5. And it goes like this. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels 
proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared by the, the Lord first, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Okay, now this little section right here, I hate to get all technical onto you, but one of the most important, two of the most important things to getting the Bible right is understanding that there is a human author here who has the faithfulness of God in mind. And so as part of the faithful community bringing us, you know, a faithful message from God, okay, but still there's a writer and that writer has skills, skills that are being used in the days that, well, he's familiar with. And so the people hearing, hearing the author here would also be semi-familiar with these writing tools or these structural tools in writing, call it just the literary structure. And so this little literary structure um, behind these verses is called a chiasm. And a chiasm, you know, makes similar points on the beginning and the end, and then makes similar points almost to the middle, and then makes the big point in the middle. So I'm going to try to, you, you can, you can grab a, you know, just, just type it, use the Google, you know, and type in these verses and then, you know, copy and paste them into, you know, some sort of word document and then play with them a little bit like I'm showing you. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. But the outside bracket of, of um, this chiasm is pointing, you know, back to that conversation about the angels. So when, you know, Chapter 1, verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? It's angels that's still part of the conversation. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, For it was not the angels, gives us that bracket that we were looking for and how the author is going to make a point. We can get to the point correctly without noticing this, but it's a little bit helpful to notice this. Um, so there's, there's, you know, the clear message that this is not about angels. And, and then there's going to be another message in between. But let's, let's, let's take a look at that. So it's not about, you know, so the first point about not being angels is that are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So back to last week's talk, angels biblically are just ministering servants. They have been sent by God. The only worth that they have is that God sent them. If you are thankful to an angel, don't thank the angel, thank God, right? I mean, so God does use angels in the Bible. That's fair game. The Bible makes a point. Doesn't de describe angels to the depth that we would probably like, but readily admits that God does use angels. And, um, you know, so the point here is, is that angels aren't the subject of of inheriting salvation. Angels are not going to inherit salvation. They're bringing the message to someone about inheriting salvation. And then chapter 2, verse 5, 
for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Well, who does God subject the world to come to? And who is the message that the angels, you know, are bringing directed to? What's the, who's the message directed to? Hey, guess what? Pay attention. It's you. It's me as people. Sapiens, you know, human beings, that's us. So we're the ones who the angels are trying to reach on behalf of God. We're the ones that God is trying to reach. And if we remember that talk, uh, get a quick grip. Um, this is the you know all-important first box of, of understanding God, and that is that God is the loving ruler of the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. We have been created people um, to occupy an extremely special place on God's creation. And so that is, you know, the, the, the core subject here. It's you. It's you who is the focus of what God is doing. Inheriting salvation is, is not about being spiritual and it's not about having guardian angels. It's about God and the angels on mission to get your attention to get you to get the message to you and then speaking of that message the next points that are made start in uh, chapter 2 verse 1 and that is therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it for since the message declared by angels and and then down below uh the, a similar point is marked, and we know that it's a similar point because that word declared comes up again. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, meaning the apostolic community has brought that word and that message to us and made sure that it was written down. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so there is a message that's out there. There is something that's been declared that is out there. And if there is something that has been declared that is out there and messengers and all kinds of validating, you know, points have accompanied the message. The most essential part of that is hearing the message and making sure that you don't drift away from the core part of the message. And that's what brings us to the very center of this. And remember, remember when it says for since the message declared by angels, you know, hark, Herald the angels sing. You remember Luke's gospel, at least everybody shows up at Christmas to know enough to know that, you know, hark, you know, and I call it hark, the her herald, the angel, but, you know, hark, the herald, the angels sing, you know, when Jesus, Jesus, who is the subject of what's going on, comes onto the scene, that the angels were there to reinforce what was going on with Jesus. And then the whole Bible is kind of brought up from Jesus, you know, on, you know, to everything that God has been doing, declaring and attesting to what has been heard uh, by giving signs and wonders and various miracles so that we might pay attention to the message. And what is this message? Well, the message comes out right there in the center that every transgression and disobedience receives a just retribution. How shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the message? The message is that Christ, God, has brought mankind 
an offer to have every transgression and disobedience paid for, receive a just retribution. When Jesus is on the cross, when Jesus rises again, this is God offering all of our transgressions and disobedience, having a just retribution in Jesus Christ on that cross. It is God's offer of forgiveness. The point is, is well, if we neglect that message of forgiveness, how are we going to be saved? So the point is simple. <laughs> Why would you say no to this? Why would anybody say no to this? It's a simple offer. It requires, you know, a pretty simple response. It just takes a little bit of humility. It takes a little bit of humility on our behalf to say, yeah, I actually feel like I do need God to save me. I do feel like God needs to save everybody in the world. So why in the world would we say no? Why in the world would we, you know, be more interested in angels or a ton of other distractions, why wouldn't we just be focused on that message that God has been at pains to bring into the world? That's what the angels are doing. That's what God is doing. That is, that is what the whole thing is about. Why would we think that we don't need to be saved? And why would our attention drift from being saved? Okay, so that's the setup to this. The setup is there is this huge message of salvation and you are to inherit salvation. And it's not about being spiritual or having guardian angels. It's God and the angels on mission to save you, to save me. What's there to deny? I'm in. But yet my ADD kicks in like yours does and we get off task in a hurry. So anyhow, God is going to continue this coffee conversation um, in the next you know, passage. So the next part of the passage as we walk down through Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, goes like this. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, let's stop and pause right there. What point is God making? First of all, I want to say that I think the translators have done us a little bit wrong. I actually, you know, studied Greek and I can see the Greek behind the text. I, I can, you know, it, the text, the, the sentence makes sense. It has been testified somewhere. In the Greek, I think there's, you know, there's another little word in there that should be added into, not to say somewhere, but like a certain somewhere. So I think it would be better if it was translated into English as it has been testified in a certain somewhere. Because clearly, this is a quote from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a quote or a, a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. And the whole point of this part of the passage is, is that Psalm 8 is, is this great reflection of, of man, you know, asking God, why are you so concerned with us? Um, why do you care for us? That's a great question to ask. You made us for a little while lower than the angels which means that we are outside of the garden. We are frustrated by this world that we live in. 
and yet we have been crowned with glory and honor and everything has been subject put into subjection under our feet again that two ways to live box that we learned in and get a quick grip is so important god is the loving creator of the world he made the world and he made us rulers of the world under him is is a great summary of genesis chapter one in the you know intention and purpose that god has in genesis chapter one and that is we're the ones who god has made this whole thing for we have been made to have the glory and honor of having everything else in creation put under subjection to our feet that's god's plan that's his purpose of course we've been frustrated from this plan because it's not like that right now everything's hard everything is is you know kind of working against us people are working against us evil lurks around every corner life is frustrating and that's the whole point of psalm 8 is that we have been frustrated you know because we are not living up to our potential we know that we have this great potential but the fact is is that we have been made lower than the angels just for a little while just for a little while, but that's not the place that we're supposed to be. Where we're supposed to be is crowned with glory and honor and everything being put under our feet too, because that's the way God has made us. But the fact is we're outside of the garden. And the fact is the biblical worldview of man, God's view of man, is that we have been completely frustrated from our potential because... Because we insist that we know the difference between good and evil. Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so now the author to the Hebrews tells us what God would say next. Have that thought in mind. Have Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 in mind that we've been frustrated from our potential. Because, you know, we continue to insist that we got this, God. We don't need you to tell us the difference between good and evil. And we make a complete mess of the world, etc. Okay, so, so now the attention and, of course, the conversation that we're having with God turns to the Son, Jesus. Okay, so God, of course, wants to talk about his family. Um, and here's what he says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, which angels are not the ones that everything is being put in subjection to but he has left nothing outside of his control at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone so what what god does now as he takes psalm 8 what the author is doing here is taking psalm 8 and putting it into the context of jesus we have been frustrated from our potential jesus put himself in this you know place that we're in so jesus you know god the son puts himself in the place that we are in and god has has you know put on to Jesus everything that he meant for us so everything has been put under Jesus feet not the angels feet nothing is outside of Jesus the son's control 
at present, of course, we do not see everything being subjected to him, but we do see him, we do see him that, you know, in his manliness, we see him lower than the angels like we are, namely Jesus, but we see him crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering, because of his suffering death, so that the grace of God, he might, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see how Psalm 8 has just been turned into a Jesus package. And so what, G, what we are frustrated by and can't achieve the potential that we should live up to, Jesus does. And, and oddly enough, the power or, you know, the, the, um, the power of God that Jesus has is actually seen in the fact that he dies and he dies to actually take away the penalty or the sting of death for us. He does so to get into our level, to show us how valuable we are. He comes to our level and he involves himself in what we must face, which is death and judgment. And he takes it upon himself. It's the beautiful plan of God. Jesus is the climactical Psalm 8 man, that man that Psalm 8 talks about, that God is so mindful of, that he cares for, yeah, that's been made for a little while lower than the angels, but our place is to be crowned with glory and honor and to have everything subject under our feet, but we can't achieve it, but Jesus can, and through Jesus, God promises us that our potential is restored. Our potential is restored. And that brings up the next point in chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, this is Jesus, the God the Son, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Once again, Jesus is the climactical God on mission. And the mission that God has is aimed directly at us, saving man. This salvation inheritance is for us. The biblical message is that God is all in on restoring us to our potential. And it is Jesus that is making this plan of God absolutely crystal clear. He himself is bringing many sons to glory like he himself is a son in glory that we should have this perfect salvation through his experience of suffering. I, I'm just saying, that's a beautiful thing. That's a sacrifice and through his sacrifice, he sanctifies those who need sanctified so that we have one source, which is him. But you see the overall picture here? God is bringing us into himself so that we would have one source of sanctification, and that is God bringing us into that relationship. So next up, 
This gets into who are we supposed to be? The author of Hebrews says, you know, God would say, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he goes on to a bunch of Old Testament quotes. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is like a mishmash of the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah. And, and clearly, you know, the whole idea here is that we are being brought into the place of family. So the picture we're going to end with is that God actually sacrifices for family. That is a concept that we can understand. And this last part, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, builds this clear picture of what's going on with Jesus and what's going on with us and how God sacrifices for family. Yeah. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's going on with Jesus Christ on the cross is nothing weird. It's actually God's perfect display of how he sacrifices for us, humanity. He takes upon himself the propitiation of our sins. That the object is not the angels or something weird. The object is just simply us to bring us into the family realm. You see, in the children of Abraham, Jesus makes that clear. We are all children of Abraham when we just simply you know, cry out, I'll put my trust in you, Lord. You're in. You're in. And when you are in, you are brothers in every respect because that was the purpose. We are family in every respect because that's been God's goal from the beginning. And so this is a beautiful picture. And it reminds me, you know, of, of just what could you find as far as inspiration and as far as mind-gripping realities, what could you possibly find that's more uplifting than this? If you've got something better than this, I'm all ears. I want to hear that God wants to save me and not only save me, but wants to restore my potential as family and being the one who God made the whole planet Earth to be in subjection to. I want to be the guy that does it right because I'm on God's side doing it the way he would do it. And the gals too, of course, are welcome. This is not a guy thing. But we're all invited into the sonship of Jesus and what he has done to sacrifice for family. It's a beautiful message. 
one that we can relate to. If you've ever sacrificed anything for family or if you think that sacrificing for family is valuable, this whole passage is about how God sacrifices for family. And speaking of family, here's what I know about human beings. I know that human beings treat those who love them the worst. Who gets our worst behaviors? Family. Who takes, you know, too long to figure out that those who love us are the ones that we ought to be giving our best behavior to. I love that Mark Twain quote that, you know, kind of goes along the lines of, you know, when I was a young man, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I, my parents were so stupid that I was embarrassed to be around them. But I, after coming back when I was 21 or 22, I was really surprised at how much they had learned. That is a picture of humanity. That's how we are. Sadly, some of us never come back around to growing up and we still treat our family who we say we love the most, but we treat them the worst. And we project that idea right back onto God. Humanity is professional at the way it maligns God's good intentions for us. That we, we lack appreciation for what is central to God's good works. And we turn God's good works and his great story into the object of ridicule. And we say, that's dumb. We lack appreciation. We lack appreciation for the one who truly does love us the most. The Bible lifts us up because God lifts us up. The message of the Bible is uplifting because God himself is lifting us up. He's not tearing us down. The Bible lifts us up and God's family is pretty, pretty, pretty high up. I don't know how you could get higher than that kind of a concept to build your imagination around. You ought to be imagining that reality because that's what God wants you to imagine, that you are part of his family, that you are restored to your potential. So start living up to it. People, human beings, we tear things down. We tear ourselves down. It's God who builds us up. And what does it cost us? What it costs us is a little humility in admitting that we need salvation. And when we get to that place where we admit that we need salvation, the message of the Bible becomes absolutely wonderful. The most wonderful thing we could possibly ever hear, that God is willing to get down on our level in the person of Jesus Christ and to lift us up into the place of family. To cry out, I will put my trust in him. I and the children that God has, chose, has, has given me. Yes, that is us. And that's who Jesus is making us to be. I don't think that's silly at all. I think that's great. Well, anyhow, that's the end of uh, today's passage. I love you, and we'll see you next time.